Welcome to Boundaryless Leadership with Nozomi Morgan, the show where we explore leadership that transcends physical and psychological boundaries. Here's your host, Nozomi Morgan. Welcome to Boundaryless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Nozomi Morgan. We explore the journey of executives, leaders, and professionals to learn how they have become a boundaryless leader. Today's guest is Chris Beaumont. And I have had honor to know him. Well, we first met, we were just talking about how long it has been, but I first met Chris when I was still, let's say in my 20s, still young, back in Tokyo working in advertising. So this is like way, way, way back then. We just figured out we met 20 years ago. So I am so excited to have Chris here today. Chris, hi, how are you? I'm fine. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, 20 oh, years on, things have changed a lot. Things um, have changed a lot, yes. But but your presence, I remember 20 years ago in Tokyo, at, in Hiro, for those who know Tokyo, in that office, I remember, I, I truly do remember meeting you. I think it was in your office. Well, that, that was above ground, wasn't it? That was a terrible exercise. <laughs> Way back then, and your presence, and just like the calmness that you bring, because you know, advertising sometimes a little bit of hectic industry for those who who know that, and maybe some of those people, especially who've watched Mad Men, the series. Chris, I don't know in Japan if that was a thing when Mad Men came out. Have I you think heard? It, it was for some. I yeah. think it was for some. Some people who some people. aspire to that sort of lifestyle and that it was never something I wanted to do. Yeah. It's important to slow down. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And so I always felt that from you. And 20 years later, you know, sitting here, you're in Japan, I'm here in the US. I so really still feel that and just feel how constant and calm and grounded you are. And I always really appreciated it so much. So again, thank you and right, welcome right. to be here. Uh, well, that welcome to be here. Welcome being here. Welcome to our podcast. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thank it's you. A pleasure to be connected. Yes, you can tell I'm just a little uh, flattered, um, and I need to be grounded. I probably should take a deep breath here. So let's start. And for those, you know, we have your bio and in our show notes. So I don't want to, you know, spend too much time talking too much of something that you know, everyone can listen because I really want you know our audience or listeners to hear what you have to say. But I, I do need to point out. You have, you're truly a global citizen and not just, and I say global citizen from a, from a standpoint of that you've really worked in, I, I believe in every single continent. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. indeed. Oh my goodness. But also not just from that perspective, but when we, you know, today we're talking about boundaryless leadership and boundaryless really means that, you know, multifaceted and being able to navigate through differences and, you know, and being flexible and kind of change shapes, but always have that really core. And I truly believe going back to what I just said, you know, meeting you 20 years ago, you really embody that. And I was, I didn't know this about you back then, but you were originally trained as a mathematical statistician. Yeah. And that, that's how you started. I, I was in, well, I was in fact trained as a theoretical math, mathematical statistician. And in those days, that was because, you know, computers were big things in rooms with air conditioning. And oh, so if you, yes. if you did any, any data analysis, it was heavy data. 
It was difficult to find. And most of your uh, theoretical application required you to actually get computer algorithms to work. So nothing, I could do all my doctoral research on my phone, but I had to do things by hand. So, you know, in my era, it was um, heavy data and you did a lot of heuristic programming, I suppose. So maybe unlike some generations who have automatic uh, calculators and computers and word processing, which can spell, you know, yes. we had to do, do it sort of manually. And I think that gives you a, a degree of granularity that means that you, uh, that helps you be grounded. But I also think that, you know, where you're brought up is incredibly important. So maybe you don't know this, but I'm actually a twin. Oh. Um, and despite our ages, we're actually uh, quite good friends still. I was born in Leeds, which is in Yorkshire. You may yeah. have heard of the dogs or the puddings. Yes. But most, most people say that people in Yorkshire are, are nosy. I'd like to use the phrase curious. I love that. And I think that's quite important because it means you also think about wanting to do something new, maybe not every day, but you, you want to do that. I had a, a kind of a life-changing episode when I was 11. I was selected to represent the UK at the United Nations-backed Children's International Summer Village, where there were about 13, 14 other delegations of four young people and some junior counselors. And I remain friends with some of those people still. And I got to learn how to play ping pong <laughs> for the first time properly with a guy from Tokyo, actually. Really? I played, played football with some people in Mexico. And yeah. So in a sense, that created a, during my teens, I, I did some junior counseling and that maintained an interaction internationally at a time when, you know, foreign travel wasn't that popular. Mm-hmm. And I suppose my mathematical statistics training made me a probabilist rather than a determinist. So I think the difference between a good and a bad statistician, frankly, is you, a good statistician is able to understand and quantify uncertainty. And that has led me to be able to wander around into different places or, or to, to be in new places. So in my regard, I think a lot of what I've been fortunate and privileged to do in many countries with many smart people, many interesting leaders with different cultures, is to really try and understand the culture and embrace that. And I've been fortunate that my career has had some consultancy, communications, Asia, and academia. And maybe I'm a kind of schizophrenic, but I can't remember until now almost having one job or even one office. And that meant that I could hide from secretaries or people and just get on and, you know, just sort of try and try and make a difference. So I got into consultancy because I was an academic and you can't really teach business school if you've never actually done anything. And being quantitative in, you know, in the early 80s, gosh, that's how old I am, um, <laughs> meant that it was actually in pretty short supply. So I started a quantitative marketing practice. Uh, Coopers and Librand, that was the forerunner of PwC before when there was a the big eight. Mm-hmm. And I developed some or wrote some models. I actually did the programming as well. And that was for the privatizations of PTT. So the, in the US, you have Judge Green and AT&T. I did the privatization of British Telecom and a few of PTTs around Europe. And trying to let executives understand what it meant to have competition and marketing. I had a T-shirt made at 
in about 1984 said, I'm not doing any more modeling. <laughs> so I kind of pivoted my group of quantitative guys to look at marketing effectiveness. You know, that famous quote, you know, 50% of my advertising works, but I don't know which 50%. But it was really to try and look at the art and the science of marketing. So I, I did do some studies of climatology and soil science, part of my PhD in hydrology. So I quite liked taking the stats into new areas and modeling or thinking about simplifying. You know, a model is just one of the key components. So I felt that at Cooper's, it was a bit narrow cast because everybody thought I was a sort of a, a different sort of accountant mm. and audit. And gosh, I, I've got some friends who are accountants, but that's not exactly their kind of constrained creativity. So I thought, I thought at the time, who would I go into a meeting with and surprise people? And I thought, my God, there's some creative people I know. And so I asked one of the, a guy I'd grown up with almost, whose mother worked for my father, to recommend an ad agency. And he, he was one of the founders of BBH. And wow. so I went, to an ad, I went to an ad agency and said, I'd like to, to do a collaboration um, because we can both win business because we are left and right brain, kind of. I wanted my people to be in rooms with people that they wouldn't normally meet. And I thought that would help the team develop. I subsequently got into um, the audit side, which was became then insolvency. So the chairman of the ad agency one night asked me if I fancied a job. And it was kind of downhill ever after that. I joined CDP, which was then one of the most innovative and thought-provoking and humorous people. British advertising agencies. It spawned off Low, it spawned off Saatchi and Saatchi and so on and so forth. It was brilliant. And I developed effectiveness metrics for them. It helped increase business. We did privatizations. And I helped create this thing called CDP Europe, which was a bunch of not networked agencies in the traditional sense, but people who wanted to remain independent. But I did learn a very important thing that creativity and effectiveness are completely aligned. So it's complete bullshit when people say, I work for a creative agency, you're such as this. Because essentially, creativity moves markets. And if you move a market, then you get, you're moving products and services into homes. CDP was then acquired by Dentsu because we'd won Toyota. Mm. And that changed my life journey and took me to Asia. Oh. Took me to Asia at the time of unprecedented change and growth. Not with Dentsu, I must add. And yeah, I'm very privileged to have come to Asia at the time, you know, when it is it was becoming in a very embryonic state, the engine of the twenty first century. I had worked in most European countries by then with, with Coopers. I had worked in North America. I came to Japan because Japan was different. Mm. It was out of my comfort zone. So I perhaps implicitly said there's no boundary there to what I wanted. Maybe, you know, 15 years later, it would have been China or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I then, well, the person that intrigued me to go to Japan, I came and had a look-see. And he, on the day that I was, I was arriving, he said, oh, Chris, actually, I got some good news. This is a really wonderful place to come to, but actually, I'm going to be leaving at the end of the year. And I'm going back to London. So I said, <laughs> okay, that's, that's fine. Well, I said, then I'm not coming. And um, he said, why? I said, because. I think it's people that make a big difference. So he quickly said, okay, so you'll work in London with me. Help me get to know the British people, because he was a Russian-Belgian emigre of the world. 
for six months. So that's what we did. And then I came. And he said he would never forgive himself if I didn't come here. So he was a very influential person. And I learned, you know, the leaders that you respect, they have a clarity about the future, but they also have an interest in the minor details. And that's pretty important. And it's a big balance. So I was really pleased how he personally said, well, why don't you just stay in London for six months longer? And I mean, God knows what the, you know, the organizational implications of all of that were or whatever. And another thing I learned from him that I think is also important, that I think too few people in this kind of frantic, connected world think about is that you have to focus, whether as an individual or as a team, there are priorities. So I tell my students often, in English, there's a big difference between interesting and important. I'm not interested in things just because they're interesting. I think you should focus on the important. And, and too many people that I've seen, you know, over my career that have perhaps not reached their full potential is because they fragment their time. Yeah. Too much time, too much time is thought about money, which is, frankly, replaceable, accessible, and too little is thought about time, which is irreplaceable. And is special and privileged. And I still find that even more so today yes. with all these so-called tweets, social media, which I don't embrace at all. Because basically, as far as I can see, they just say that you're alive. You're not engaged. <laughs> right. That is so true. And then, and so then when you get to Asia, I know some guys gave me a, a bunch of lit books to read. Or, and, you know, that was the worst possible thing. If you're going to go to a country, you've got to find yourself because at the end of the day, you wake up with yourself every morning, look in the mirror. And you can't be thinking, do I have to do this? What should I do? And how do I do that? I fired my driver after a week because I realized he was the third most expensive person in the company. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to go to meetings. I could go to meetings on my own. I didn't need to show that we respected the client because I would take 10 other people who didn't speak. I thought that was quite disrespectful. But I realized that, you remember, this was 90, 1992, 91, 92. Globalization was embryonic. Mm. And globalization in those days was, well, we, we succeeded pretty well in our own country. And it's very difficult to get more market share. So let's go into another country. Oh, we've been to we've been to America, we've been to Europe, we've been to every other place that speaks English. So, oh my God, let's go somewhere else. And yeah, you know, of course, Japan was like the complete outlier in those days. Yeah, in the sixties when IBM went around the world, Hofstede, one of the most famous social scientists, yes. his model didn't work for Japan. Why? Yes, because right. the dimensions weren't right. I'd remembered that because I'd also predicted the IBM PCs when they were first launched in Europe back in the when. And so I created a social values monitor for Japan called Japan Insights, and then somewhat illegally did the same thing in China at the time and India. They didn't sell very well, so I only <laughs> did it in Japan. Um, and my basic view was that global campaigns needed transcreating, they didn't need translating. And you need to be able to understand the culture of a country. You also need to understand the culture of the category. You need to understand the local competition to be able to take a brand successfully. And a lot of the Western brands were just, and a lot of the Western companies, including the ones I worked with and my bosses, it was a lot like in the early days of globalization, central command and control. And that's absolute failure. And I think by the late 90s, early 2000s, people understood that there was a new sense of, or the successful people sent a new sense of globalism. And I always like to think of this, the problem that you had when people just came into, into Japan and they would have a a couple of sushi meals and think they knew Japan. 
that they would have this idea of NIH, not invented here. And they would try and force. But, and my principle to them was NIH. I embraced NIH. But the NIH for me was now improved here. You have to understand the local culture. So to get around, and remember, I'm a British person. I'm not an American person. And uh, we are connected or disconnected by a common language. And a lot of the clients were multinationals with headquarters in the U.S. So I created a phrase, mid-90s, late-90s, called soft individualism to um, try and describe to some people visiting Japan for the first time, to try and describe the Japanese, to get a hook around it. And soft individualism, because a lot of brands were trying to empower people to get them to do better things or whatever. But to me, soft individualism was the balancing of the assertive self and the belonging self. And the assertive self was more reflective of the West, and the belonging self is to understand the importance of and your effect on the group. Yes. So then a bit a bit later when I moved on and, and after we met, I created um, something like called I on Asia. And I was able to do that in about 10 different countries simultaneously. And then I was able to tell people, OK, so I work in communications. I work in an ad agency. I didn't like the word ad agency because we did other, lots of other things. But too often people just said, so what does the consumer, who's our target consumer? Well, at the end of the day, brands connect with people. And I was also a bit fed up with people saying, what's going to be the future in the web 2.0? So, I don't know, 2002, I said, it's people 3.0. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes they're shoppers. Maybe sometimes they actually buy and then consume. But that's who we, who we actually want to connect to as consumers. And I think that that's really quite important. And, I, and that, I think, is, is very important in terms of understanding borderless. People think about borderless and they'll think about countries. But borderless is the mind, it's the spirit, it's what you do when you get up. But it's also very important. And I don't think too many people who haven't traveled that often think enough about the local cultures. And going forward in a borderless leadership, then ethics, culture will become more important. Um, yes. And I say ethics, culture, and the power of transformation and your ability to transform will become even more important because people overpromise, in my experience. They overpromise even more these days because of financial reporting and short termism. But the absolute reality when you get to somebody of my age is that in the medium term, five to six, seven years, we can bring about real fundamental transformation that perhaps we don't even imagine. And I think, for example, the last couple of years with COVID, the future for many countries around the world have been fast forward, not just because of the pandemic, but technology has had to be embraced faster in many places than it would have been. And so in my, in my estimation, people overestimate what they can do in the short term and underestimate the potential going forward. Yeah, I've been for- fortunate, I think, also, in all of that, to also being a sort of an academic. Yes. Kind of. So, you know, when I was at Cooper's, I was also a professor at London Business School called Decision Science. It was basically adding up and subtracting. And I kind of like to specialize in, in forecasting. And that doesn't mean numbers. It could mean scenarios. I once was asked to forecast 150 years out. That's a brilliant job because basically that goes beyond scenario planning. And nobody who's alive then is going to be able to question what you're doing. <laughs> that's 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 uh, a win. 
It's absolute win. But, but maybe that's also germane to today's discussions about sustainability and getting to net zero, because those in 2050 are not going to be around the people today who are making the decisions for 2050, but they're not accountable. So I suppose the thing I missed most in Japan was a little bit about the academic balance, mm-hmm. um, because it, it brings a sense of rigor. It, it, to your earlier point, it also gets you to ponder, to look broader. I thought that the um, the insights data space that I created was a, a way of trying to do that a little bit with a bit BB and trying to be a little bit fickle in that sense. But I did miss that. I missed English sausages and I missed the, the <laughs> um, intelligent questions of, uh, of, I suppose, young young academics and researchers. But I was very pleased that maybe 2008 that Tokyo University asked me, Tokyo University as you know, it's quite prestigious. It doesn't have a business school. It doesn't have a management center. So I decided, and I was attached to the medical area, surgical science, nanotech, biotech, and I knew nothing of that. And that was, again, let's go into your, out of your comfort zone. And my purpose really was to help them with the kind of translational research initiative. You know, scientists, these are doctoral students or postdocs. So scientists in whatever area are inventing stuff. And typically write academic papers that don't get promoted, whatever. But if you can take that invention and make create value and create innovation in the market, you might in fact improve the health of society. You might improve the health of individuals, business, you know, breakthroughs in cancer treatments, breakthroughs in drug delivery or whatever. These are sort of the areas that I've been working in. So and there I really learned one of the lessons I didn't realize I had was that I'm actually quite multidisciplinary. So I've yes. worked in a lot of areas. Yes. But if you want to create a transformation, and okay, they call it whatever, disruptive inf- innovation and all these fancy words. It's basically a transformation. You're rewriting the rules. You're disrupting by design. And, and I think that design thinking is very much misused. But if you can bring people with different disciplines together, then that collaboration will bring out better innovation. I 100% agree with that. And that's part of um, the reason why this boundaryless leadership is so important. Exactly what you said about bringing those different thinking and different uh, perspectives, different, even different values, like, you know, really having those different, different views is so important. And there's not a lot of people, not a lot of leaders that are comfortable doing that because it means you have to go out of your comfort zone and and really listen and accept. Well, we've got two ears and we've got one mouth and we should use those in that ratio and all too often people don't. And also then you've also got organizations, structures that really don't allow for that. Right. If you think about the academic environment, you've got academic white towers. uh, White towers, yes. uh, Isolation. And so I've consciously... I think I've now, in the, in the last 15 years, got maybe five now, five different faculties coming. And basically, I'm the only one who cuts across any of the different faculties because everybody else is silent because yes. that's law. In America, you've got a few institutions, particularly in health, that have brought things together. And that's partially because there's a much better, closer collaboration between academia and commerce. The business So world, the yes. University of Southern California in San Francisco has got a brilliant nanotech, biotech, and it's world class. So I think that that's very, very important to bring people together. So one of the sort of 
secondary things that I do at the university is I, I working with some medical specialists in a, in a thing called Lifestyle by Design. And the title is mine. Um, I, I want the bridge between the healthy self and then ultimately the happy self. So it's life satisfaction as well as mental health and physical health. And perhaps it's never, unfortunately, never been more important to think about things like that given COVID. But my focus there is to try and help people, multiple constituencies drive policy. And to try and, I'm not even sure, people talk about social innovation. That's fine, whatever that means. It just means change of some sort. Mm -hmm. I want social entrepreneurism because you're not going to get the innovation unless you create value for people. Mm -hmm. You know, for whatever you're doing, whether it's philanthropy or whatever, the, the money m makes a difference. So, and, you know, mental health is going to be a very much more significant thing going forward because of the last few years. So I think that that co-creation and that co-collaboration, and you may not have ever noticed this when, when, when we were working together, but I think most people that, I, that were recruited in the company, I actually saw them before they were actually accepted. Uh -huh. and, it wasn't because, and it wasn't because they weren't capable. I didn't want to recruit similar people. If you always recruit, and this is particularly true in Japan, as you know, because yes. there are similarities. You know, if everybody has probed the same path, even if you've got spectacles on, you'll probably see only the same thing. Right. So I want people who have had different backgrounds, different experiences, because they could bring a different thought. Yes. You know, when we brought, I suppose, people who were working in consumer with the people who were practice, the practitioners of health, they realized that actually you could improve certain products because of seasonality or certain products didn't work because of the humidity in Japan. You know, that's an insight or a perspective that, you know, maybe the group that had never been in the real science would never have got to. And, right. I, and I've always been struck that if you want a big idea, which agencies always think is a waste of business, what is it? It's a nonsense. But if you want a breakthrough or a transformation, then put people together who are not normally able to work together or haven't yes. got the same thing. Yes. So actually, yeah, I was going to say, so those are the things that we see in our line of work as well, to really bring that big scale transformation. As you beautifully said, Chris, that collaboration is, is bringing all those people from different stakeholders that typically yeah. companies would only bring in the people that they normally work with, right? Like they have daily interaction with or the team members. But we've found, and probably I feel like we're kind of seeing the same view, is that in order to make these big scale changes, you have to bring in like people from different communities, different parts that might not have a direct every day to day relationship to whatever that is going on, but they have some part of it. And because it's a whole system, you have to look at it as a system. And I think a lot of times our clients and a lot of these companies and you know organizations, leaders that we work with, don't the ones that are really able to see that make the transformation or attempt to make those transformations are the ones who understand like we're all living in a system. One thing that we do affects like there's so much there's a big ripple mm -hmm. effect, and we need to bring out oh, those that ripple might be the second or third ring. But they need to be part of it because it affects them too at some point. And that's part of the work that we've been doing. And that's kind of going back to lead, leading back to the title of, of this podcast around the boundary list. Like they need to be able to 
like that multidisciplinary that you have, that experience, it's getting more and more important that people have those exposures. And I really loved, we're going back to like 30 minutes ago when you started out, you know, sharing your amazing experience about that curiosity that you have. I really think at the end of the day, no matter whatever age, whatever position, wherever you are in your life, what really as humans, I think that's one of our gifts that we have is to have that curiosity and constantly asking questions of why, what, how, like, where's this coming from? And that's how we actually create meaningful connections by asking questions. And you are actually, I really, this is the first time I ever heard this, but I loved what you said about disconnected by a a common language. And I thought that was so interesting because what I, what I understood when you said that is a lot of times people think that because we speak the same language, like in, in this case, we're speaking English right now, we assume that we're connected. We understand each other, but the truth is we don't, it doesn't matter what language you speak. You don't well, understand. It's even worse when you think about email. Just because uh, yes. email doesn't doesn't mean to say somebody's even read it, understood it, or most importantly, did I actually communicate? So, yes. I, I think I think those are all all very very important. And I think that if you're not curious, then you're not wishing to learn. And going forward, leaders will have to create learning or much more learning environments because technology and whatever will transform the different skill sets that will be needed. And there will be those people who are in demand and those people, unfortunately, that won't. That will be the probably the biggest challenge of leaders anywhere mm-hmm. will be the attraction and retention of talent. Yes, so yes. The, so the leader will have to show much more clarity. And then, of course, they'll have to have a thought about how, how work is going to change because of the last two years. And, and are you going to have a, a hybrid working model or whatever? And how do you, how do you maintain the culture of, of what you're trying to do? And I think that's quite interesting. I mean, because... I once met in Atlanta. Yes. A guy, a guy that was um, quite extraordinary at the time. He was the CMO of Coca-Cola at the time. And he was talking to some other people with me. And he said something about, so what do you think about the, an idea? And let's have some, somebody then said out of the box thinking. And he just said to the group, and it very quietly, relatively quietly, but, but it actually silenced them. So there is no box. And I think that has been the guiding principle ever since um, T and I connected quite well. So you can have a desire to understand what is, mm-hmm. but you need to have a passion and an inquiring mind about what can be. Yes. And yes. As, a, as a leader, you try and create that passion and purpose for your team. And that team can vary about what can be. And out of the box thinking, really, in terms of marketing or business, or indeed most things, is you have a current franchise, so you either deepen it and or you broaden it. You get more people. And, and it is still pretty much two-dimensional. And those therein lies the opportunities. And okay, you can fundamentally change how you deliver it, and you can use technology to create a new business model, a software as service, or an ecosystem, or whatever. But essentially, that is what you're trying to do. How do we take people, our business, from what is to what can be? And I think that's going to be the challenge and the boundaryless leadership challenge because you know, things are moving faster and there is an urgency now for business. And the reality is that you know, very quickly, many businesses won't be around. 
And yes. the world is talking about ESG and sustainability. And ESG is about compliance. And people don't understand it and they have got metrics. And it's great for consultancies. But it's just like audit. But yes. compliance, compliance does not create innovation. The way we will be sustainable business, a sustainable world, a sustainable society is by improving our business, by growing and realizing what can be. And there's and never been a more important to do that now. So when, when you say, I really hear you, and I really wholeheartedly agree with you around ESG at its compliance base. I mean, if you look at the documents, and I see that you have the pin on, isn't that the ESG pin? No? This is, no, this is much more important. This is the SDG. Oh, SDG one. This is the SDG. SDG so pit. Okay. Of the, of the United Nations SDG, people think climate, but actually six of the first nine are about human beings. They're about diversity. Yes. They're about humans. Yeah. Equality. They're about food sustainability. Yes. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. So I think with SDGs, you have a process mm-hmm. that is sufficient. It's like a, I call it, that's a mega trend. And businesses and, and private institutions can, get on the back of that and that's good but ESG is a distraction is very good for as I say consultant but I mean okay so tell me about sustainability if you're a petrol company versus if you're in the fashion business fundamentally different but both are profound to make a cotton t-shirt is dramatic and you won't be able to produce the amount of cotton because of the burgeoning Asian population so it's about if you want to be sustainable world, your businesses need to be sustainable. Yes. Yes. It's very good practice to yes. be a, I want to grow my business. I want to keep my people employed. I want to be whatever would all what keeps the leader employed, to be honest. So there's no inconsistency there. But then, you know, marketing is not about leadership. And so you have all these fancy projects and greenwashing and because sustainability should not be in the hands of marketing people it should not be in the hands of people who are pseudo accountants and compliance it should be in the hands of part of the strategic leadership narrative it's part of your very being yes and i so love you saying that with so much passion and it really it should be you know who they are right part like the values that being and to your point, it has to be in every aspect, not just the fancy marketing, not the beautiful YouTube videos that they produce or the website, you know, all that. Oh, it's verging almost on immoral. Okay. So, you know, years ago we had CSR, so that led lots of people to produce very fancy custom published annual report. Yes. Yeah. You know, kill a few thousand trees. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so then you had corporate share value. So we're going to cooperate with a couple of com- companies. But, you know, it's still essentially greenwashing. It was a project. It wasn't It wasn't a philosophy and it didn't have too much of a purpose. And that's what, you know, people thought leaders have passion and they do. They have charisma. I mean, by definition, if you're a leader, you've got to get somebody to follow you. So who's going to follow somebody who hasn't got those things? But they also have to have purpose and they also have to have clarity and they have to be able in this world where everything's changing so rapidly and there's things that are interesting but not important, you have to simplify the complex. If you're going to energize and communicate with people who are in your either company or in your community so that you can actually go together. Yeah, so 20 years ago, marketing was in the marketing department. Now with social media, everybody can say stuff. Yes. So you have to have clarity. You have to have 
a better strategy. And of course, a key component of that would be sustainability. I'm saying strategy because obviously that's something that I quite like. Yeah. But it's never been more important. Yes. I, and I... Strategy, strategy is about choice. Mm. And once you've made that choice as a leader, you have to tell people what the implications are. You cannot be special to many people. You said something earlier which I, I feel like is in the core of who you are and really see this important is you, you mentioned about focus and priority. And I think right. what you said about, you know, strategies is basically that's what we're deciding, right? What the focus is. And you have a lot of options. All of them are right in their own way. We can, you know, you can use data. Can make them right. Yeah, yeah, can make, exactly. Make them, make right. them right. We've, we've done that, right? <laughs> we've done, we've been through presentations and things like that, that, an idea was made right because there's always ways you can slice and dice things and make it look right or create a story that makes it right. But it is a choice and deciding to focus on that thing and, and to your point, communicating, aligning everyone in your organization to head that direction. And I find, and I, I wonder for, since you've worked in a lot of different countries, if you were to, just curious, looking at Japanese leaders that you've worked with, what do you think they're good at? And what do you think, you know, talking about survival, you know, Japanese live, a, you know, really long as, as human beings. And a lot of their companies are survive pretty long. You know, Japan has one of the oldest companies in the history. Yeah, yeah. So looking at that and, and knowing that we're in survival as, as, a, as a world, I should say, what do you think Japanese leaders do well? And what do you think Japanese leaders can do better to actually to survive through this? Because I'm actually, to be honest, personally, I'm worried, very worried as a Japanese, just looking, you know, now that I live in the US, looking from afar, I'm worried if this country is going to literally sink. Not well, well, okay, let me allay your fears. Then. So, <laughs> okay, well, please do. Before, please do Chris. before I answer. Before I try and answer your question, I need it's to think about something. Now, I think, first of all, you got, you've wrapped up a lot of things there. Um, I did, yes. Ha, ha, Japan domestically is incredibly competitive. And so the companies that have historically survived have survived because they, they've been able to beat the local competition. Yes. Relatively few, however, have gone overseas. So yes. the people who are listening overseas will know about the successes of Toyota and Sony, da, 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 da. but they are exceptions. And if you look at the Japanese stock market, a dramatic proportion still get the vast majority of their income. And this is the K number one listed from domestic. Well, the population, she is declining. It declined fastest last year. Yeah. And so maybe Japan will become a Switzerland of Asia because, okay, so why do they live long? Well, they eat better. They historically, I think the Japanese business model of job for life is fraught. You need to get new blood. You need to get new things coming in. I also think fundamentally, and this isn't any, anybody who knows me, on-the-job training is absolutely the worst thing possible because you basically perpetuate stupidity or bad, <laughs> bad, bad practice. Yeah. Well, you certainly confirm that there's nothing. I think a lot of that changed around 2000 when you had Y2K because that was a complete nonsense. And then we began to get personal computers and then we didn't have to have you know, systems that were just unacceptably able to conflict with each other. Um, so I think that if you look at you westernized, well, Japan has had a terrible amount of inward investments, but still pretty much survived. 
It's got the most ridiculous ratio of GDP deaths, but still it's doing okay. Anybody visits Japan and sees Tokyo and sees some of the, its wonderful temples and shrines sees it's got a balance of the modern and new. It doesn't look as like, I mean, I've been here since before, well, the bubble had burst before, but they didn't tell me when I arrived. Um, so that because people just carried on for a few years. So I, it's different. And so there are quite a lot of things about Japanese built-in systems, conformity. So meetings where the consensus is arranged before the meeting. I used to get very annoyed when people would have a meeting to prepare for the meeting with me. What's he going to say? Or when they would, you know, the agency and the client would have a meeting before me and the president would meet. This is a complete waste of time. Meetings that don't have agendas, meetings that don't follow up on the last meeting. I mean, completely ridiculous, but they still perpetuate. So in essence, one of the fundamental flaws in my observation in Japan is there's very little accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got, very, very, in terms of ESG, governance is terrible. Yes. In terms of diversity and the role of women, and womenomics is, is a blur because womenomics is just a tax fraud. It's a misnomer. The women in Japan have become worse during the period of Abe and womenomics. So what is more important is age-based seniority. The world needs a hierarchy of imagination. Ideas can come from anywhere. That's one of the reasons I so enjoy going back to being in the university. I'm talking to people who are not, they've got doctoral degrees. They've not necessarily been into, into companies and been told how to set. I nearly got thrown out of the first agency I was, that I was vice chairman of. April the 1st, we get all the new graduates, something, I don't know, 30, 40. Yeah. Equal numbers of, of ladies and, and men. They're all in black suits, black skirts, black trousers, whether boys or girls. And they come into conference room and there was not one woman on the board. I was by far the youngest. And I said to them, we will listen to you because most of our clients' target is nearer your age than anybody on this side of the table. So please tell us if we're wrong. And my colleagues on the side of the table thought I'd had some sort of brain aneurysm. And I was being ridiculous, but I was being absolutely truthful. I put a whiteboard in my office on the executive floor. I was then somebody complained that my room was too noisy. People were coming in and working and talking. I mean, so I think there's a lot of things that historically have been about not having confrontation. Mm-hmm. And particularly, if you think Japan is powerless in technology, making things, interaction systems, robots, whatever, but the user interface, the design language is brilliant, but the user interface is very poor. And that, I think, comes down to their education. I was asked recently about how could I improve the education of some postdoctoral students, and I said, well, I'd start when I was about four or five. It's not about rote learning. It's about creative thinking. And yes. um, if you want people to be borderless, you've got to give them those tools. Otherwise, you know, they go into meetings, they go into their careers, their life journeys, shackled almost, or at least got one hand tied behind the back. So the leaders that I have um, respected around the world, and I respected some politicians, I've had the pleasure of meeting some prime ministers, and even the president of Russia, when he was the agricultural minister, Mr. Gorbachev, you know, very senior people of large blue chip multinational borderless was, I think, the first coined by Jack Welch. And then he was trying to break up 
the borders. And I think nowadays it's, it's making the minds open as well mm-hmm. and making the organization fluid. And, and maybe the future work will be helped by the COVID and that it's not about working from home or hybrid or whatever. It's about a focus when you come together. And it may mean, I mean, to me, the office that I knew is dead. I don't need people to go into the office because that doesn't mean they're productive. But I do need people to get together because when you interact, and you can't do it on Zoom, when you interact, benefit of one plus one plus one is greater than 10. So those things need to be, but that can be done much easier in a different way of working. So we need to think about the future of work. We need to think about the fact that most people are going to live like in Japan over 100 years. If I knew I was going to live healthily, so I don't know, whatever it is. I mean, theoretically now I should be retired and into the dotage and I'm going to sort of sit and get slower and slower. <laughs> and and that, that was the model, the yes. three-stage model when I was born. Yes. But had I known that there was now going to be a 100-year life, and that's you one of my ex-colleagues Linda Graham's book a few years ago, basically, you're going to have multiple careers. And technology is going to demand that we all have different careers. And so how are we as a society or are we as an individual or how are we as a borderless com- company going to think about continuous learning? Yeah. How are we going to say that people over 60 can contribute? They have a wisdom, they have a set of expertise and experience that Okay, there's a lot more technology, but the human interactions are the things that will endure, I think, over the next whatever. And and society doesn't seem to be addressing that. So I think that there's quite a few things about that, you know, inequality of age, inequality of sex, but it's also throwing out all the knowledge on this. And that's quite an important thing um, that needs to be addressed. Mm. So we, we think about short-term and not enough about long-term, but the Japanese think about long-term. But the, the short-term decisions are not taken easily because doesn't need to, there's a consensus rather than a confrontation. But in general, the best leaders, whether they're Japanese, American, Mexican, Bolivian, or French, they have an attention to detail, and they have also got clarity about the future. And they have an attention that is personal as well. Just like I said, the guy who said he was leaving Japan said, oh, well, you stay. So those things matter. So big people also take care of little people. So most of the people I I have respected as really interesting leaders, I felt that I would love to have spent more time with them. And, you know, we often wrote, I can remember often writing strategies on the back of napkins in restaurants and stuff like that, because we were having good conversations and maybe our memories would have got a bit worse afterwards. So, um, (laughs) So I don't, I don't think that you can say that leadership can be trained, it can be helped. But at the end of the day, as I said before, you've got to be yourself. And as we become more internationally minded, that becomes even more important. So I think that the French education system is probably the the best towards creative thinking in many regards. But that means that there's an awful lot of talking. I think one of the things that the British Empire did for India was to help them with debating but that often becomes the goal is to debate rather than to find a decision so you know purpose clarity i had a room in one built in in one office where the chairs you could not sit on comfortably for more than 15 minutes if you wanted to go to sleep in the meeting you would fall off and you could break your leg (laughs) i mean and it was deliberate i don't attend meetings that are longer than an hour 
although some of my lectures, unfortunately, three hours. If you have a lot to say, then maybe it's better to have shorter meetings with more focused topics. And maybe you don't need all the people mm-hmm. sitting there saying nothing. So I think leadership's a lot about common sense, which I have realized in the last two years during COVID, there's not a lot of common sense around. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, you know, borderless. Well, certainly the response to COVID has been very nationalistic mm-hmm. and very, and very, uh, I mean, so different EU, there wasn't an EU pan-Europe view. There wasn't really a federal view in the US. There certainly wasn't much of a view in, in consistent view in Japan. Some. So I think that, you know, what's most interesting is that things are changing quite quickly. Um, yes. We have the tools like we're talking today. We couldn't have done that. I mean, how many hours did I spend in airports, on airplanes during my life? It's unbelievable amount. And in yeah. the last two years, I have not been to, I've been to Tokyo once. I've given all my lectures. I mean, half of the postdoc students are not even in the country yet. So this is wonderful. You've got more time to think. And we've got tools that can, we're limited by our imagination and our ability to help people think about doing the same thing as we want. So to motivate them. And we have to think about focusing on the topics that are important. Not the yes. You know, kind of, as closing kind of this, everything you said, what really comes to me is what you're really challenging us to think about, you know, as leaders or listeners, you know, regardless of where you are, who you are, what you do is really thinking out what matters most. Because you kept on yeah, using. So, yeah, I yeah. think so. And, and therefore, what would I be saying if, you were, if I was yeah. passionate about? Firstly, I'm passionate about people. I want them to achieve the best. I wanted to leave my part of the world slightly better so that when I left the company, it didn't matter. They just carried on and they, they thrived. I think now I'm, more, I'm also interested, we should think about improving life satisfaction. That's my lifestyle by design. So measure what we treasure. GDP has been the focus of whatever, profitability. GDP absolutely measures nothing that is important to humans. And if you look at data, happiness and GDP do not correlate. That is true. Yeah, that is true. And so my, I suppose, leaving thoughts would be have constant curiosity. That will fulfill your life. It will help you to learn to think, to see how fortunate you are. So what has always been a challenge is that we have to remember how to learn. And then we also have to learn how to forget. Mm. Because the stuff we learn, I mean, I believe many of my colleagues, given the rapidity of change, not my direct colleagues, but you know, colleagues in some subjects areas. Stuff they teach in the first year is history in the fourth year. So they are history teachers. But I wouldn't say that directly to them, of course. <laughs> but um, because you know that education gives you a framework to think about something else. But yeah, learning how to forget. Yes. I absolutely believe that measures of success that were happening maybe three years, even three years ago, not gonna be indicators of success in the future. Mm. So true. Awesome. Andy, Andy Grove, who said he was paranoid, wasn't he? <laughs> yes. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this absolutely very dis- enjoyable. Thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, I would love to go on forever, but unfortunately, we, we, we'll, we're going to end now here. Everybody but, can uh, go to sleep now. Uh, no, no, no. I think a lot of people are now going to think of like, what does this mean to me? Like, what does it mean for me? How, how do I take 
what you shared with us and think about, first of all, that that life satisfaction. What what does that mean yeah, for me? If you don't, if people don't enjoy what they're doing in your company, you're not going to get very far. Right. And if I think they don't want to come to work. How do you help them come to ask them right. what do yeah. they want? Yeah, yeah, right. And that's curiosity. And then I think that always comes back. So I, I can see, you know, those those connections, like you said, what matters most, you know, people and really improving life satisfaction. It all and if you love people, you're curious about the people. So you'll ask those questions naturally because you you want to know. So I really see, you know, everything you said, you you went a lot of different directions, but there's so there's a core, you know, theme there that I, I hear from you. And I know a lot of people would love to get in touch with you. So what would be the best way to get in touch with you, Chris? It's email. Email. Uh, okay. Social, uh, the social media I'm not necessarily wonderful. Yeah. So for everyone, we will put Chris's email address in the show notes so you can reach out to him. And I mean, it's been 20 years since we sat down and talked, but I remember you exactly the way that you, you know, you shared everything with us today. And I am so grateful 20 years ago that you hired me into that company. You were the president at that time. And I was, I was a little, you were the big one. I was a little one. And I am so grateful that you saw something in me back then in year 2000 or 2002. And because of that, I am here today. So Chris, again, thank you so much. And if I ask you to come back, would you be open to that? Oh, yes. yes I'm, <laughs> I'm putting, putting on your spot. It's like, you can't say no here. Uh, after like, how much I've said. <laughs> <laughs> after, after, after those nice comments, that it would be very inappropriate. To exactly. Say that. No, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to, to reconnect and to talk to you. Um, and mo- mostly a pleasure to see that you're enjoying yourself. That's the most important thing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for joining and listening to this episode. Please take this opportunity to explore your own boundaryless leadership. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Leadership with Nozomi Morgan. Be sure to check the show notes for information regarding today's guest and to email Nozomi directly. Join us next week for another episode. <laughs>